Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the 480th edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. I'm your host, Daniel Feuerstein. Get you American perspective of our clubs, leagues, players, national team, and other fabulous moments. Get your daily reading from me and other writers over at Once a Metro and the rest of the SB Nation family of soccer websites. Come on in. The chat room is open. If you have a question for me, I'll try to answer it to the best of my abilities. Tonight, in my intro monologue, I am here to talk about a perversion of American history, in American soccer history. That perversion, sadly, is basically not giving our history enough credit not giving our history of great moments, great players, and what they have done in the game here in the United States as well as abroad. It is a travesty and a shame that only one person was eligible and unanimous to enter the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Now, first things first, it's not this person's fault. He is not to be blamed. But let me just say this. To Carlos Bocanegra, congratulations on your induction as the only member in the class of 2020 entering the National Soccer Hall of Fame in Frisco, Texas. Congratulations on achieving a major milestone in your career and in your personal life. I am here not to take anything away from Carlos Bocanegra. The man was a dominant player for the Chicago Fire. He did well on the back line for the U.S. men's national team. This man... This man was absolutely fantastic when it comes to being a part of the fabric of American soccer. But it baffles me, baffles me, why on earth? More players are not going to the Hall of Fame, and they have achieved so much, male or female. Why? Why are these people being blackballed? Why are these people not getting an opportunity? Did they say something to insult those, the powers that be, to uh, put their votes in 
dare I say, embarrass them? Did they call someone's mother something? You know, did they did they insult their dogs, their cats? I don't know. But it baffles me how some people, some players, are not in the Hall of Fame, whether they are American-based or they have come to play internationally in Major League Soccer. Why is Jaime Moreno not in the National Soccer Hall of Fame? Why is Brian Ralston not in the National Soccer Hall of Fame? I mean, it it just baffles the mind. And there are so many other players that are not in the Hall of Fame. I understand. I mean, well, let me just say this: Why is Clint Mathis not in the Hall of Fame? Didn't he win an MLS Cup championship with Real Salt Lake? Didn't he perform at a high level in MLS with the Metro Stars? Five goals in one game. An 80-yard slalom sprint against, you know, Dallas. Both of those moments against Dallas. A right-footed free kick, a, you know, a left-footed attacking run, and a header hat trick. Where have you ever seen that? What he did for the national team, the Honduran special, the free kick goal in Honduras in World Cup qualifying, the opening goal in the second group stage match at South Korea. He won a Gold Cup title before going to South Korea, Japan for the World Cup for the USA. Clint Mathis has done so many things, and yet he's not in the Hall of Fame. And now their eligibility has run, has, has run at, ran out, and so basically they go to the Veterans Committee. Are the veterans going to nominate these players? I don't know. I haven't spoken to a veteran. It's just fathomable what the hell is going on here. And here are the uh, people who are allowed to vote. The 10 candidates per ballot. All past and present senior men's and women's national team coaches. All active MLS and NWSL and all active MLS and NWSL head coaches, minimum four years experience. MLS and NWSL management representatives, all Hall of Famers, design, designated media members, MLS commissioner and NWSL executive director, the U.S. Soccer chief executive officer slash security secretary general, and the U.S. Soccer president which is now Cindy Parlow Cohn. And may I present to you from that rant on ESPN from two years ago, in October of 2018, almost two years ago, may I present to you, ladies and gentlemen, Taylor Twellman. Who votes for the Hall of Fame, you ask? Well, here's the group that votes for it. This is the selection committee. At the bottom of this is Dan Flynn and Carlos Cadero. They are individuals that voted. Why do I say that? Because the process of elimination will tell you who's not fulfilling their obligation. There are 280 total votes. Only 32% voted. So 
So that 68% that is not voting is basically telling the Hunt family that your $55 million building, it's a waste. For those of you at home, the four other major sports hall of fame, on average, get a return of 90% votes, 95%, excuse me. And if you don't vote, you lose your obligation. What got me thinking of this, Ian, and everyone at home, Steve Tarandolo, 15-year career in the Bundesliga, mayor of Hanover, two World Cups. He didn't even get 50% of the vote. That's a problem. So media, MLS, NWSL, quite frankly, the current Hall of Fame members, you're not voting, you're not fulfilling your obligation. That needs to change. The second thing that everyone wants to have this conversation is that U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer should separate their Hall of Fame. That makes no sense. Because currently in the Hall of Fame, there are nine NASL players, and I'm going to show you eight, where five of them played in the World Cup for their respective countries. Why do I bring that up, you say? Because Jaime Moreno, with over 120 goals and over 100 assists in Major League Soccer, can't even get 40% of the vote. But then I go back to my original point, is that if you're getting 95% of the vote, the majority of them would have a brain and put Jaime Moreno in, and quite honestly, David Beckham should be in as a builder. My third point is, as more transparency comes to the Hall of Fame, and this is more valid and a more authentic, real representation of the Hall of Fame in the history of this game, which includes indoor soccer from 1985 to 1993, we can't forget the women. Because my fear is this, is that this becomes more clear and the list of players comes out, the women are going to be lumped in. Let's be honest, the women are more decorated than the men. We have to do a much better job of making sure that at least one woman gets in. And right now, Hope Solo, and I understand what she said is not favorable to those that are in U.S. soccer right now. I understand that they're upset about it. But to ignore her playing career over those comments, you can separate the problem. Honor her career. Then you worry about her comments. That's a separate situation. That is a separate situation with Hope Solo. She was a damn good goalkeeper for the women's national team, winning World Cups, Olympic medals, and yet because of her comments aimed at the Federation, this is why she's not going to the Hall of Fame. I understand why they're upset with it, but you have to separate the player from the individual who is having a problem with the Federation. It has to be a separation. It must. Let her in. And here's something I didn't even know. New York Red Bulls at at DC United on Madison Square Garden Network, locally here in the the New York City, New Jersey, tri-state area. Shep Messing's not even in the Hall of Fame. The New York Cosmos goalkeeper who had Pele, Beckenbauer, Roth, and the many other players that he was with at that time. The starting goalkeeper of the New York Cosmos is not in the National Soccer Hall of Fame. That, my friends, is a travesty on its own. What is going on? Honestly, this is what I... Let me tell you how I feel. I am a member 
of the national is the uh, excuse me. I'm a member of the North American Soccer Reporters Union. At the moment, the NASR North American Soccer Reporters. We are only allowed to vote for the MLS Player of the Week each and every season since we began, legitimately began. None of us at the NASR has an opportunity to vote for players in the Hall of Fame. If I was able to have a vote into the you know to the voting for the National Soccer Hall of Fame each and every class uh every class year these players would be in now unfortunately their eligibilities have run out so now they are going to the veterans committee to be voted in question is are the veterans going to be able to vote or will they say no we don't care because right now our history is being perverted. We'll remember those great moments, those great games, those great times. But the truth of the matter is this. Will they be truly recognized? Will they be thrown to the wayside because someone's favorite player did not get voted in? So we're not going to vote your guy in. Look what Bradley Wright Phillips did for the New York Red Bulls. The fastest to 100 goals in the history of the league. The fastest striker to get 100 goals in the history of the league. This, my friends, makes me worried that Bradley Wright Phillips may not go in. He may not get a red jacket, and that's the one thing that scares me right now. What is going on with it? Why is this happening? And why is there laziness? But I guarantee you this. If the North American Soccer Reporters Union is allowed to vote, those players who have lost eligibility should get them back. And we now as a voting, if it ever happens, the North American Soccer Reporters, if we are allowed to vote, Bring those players' eligibility back. Bring them back. Because I'm getting sick and tired of seeing great players not going into the Hall of Fame that they richly deserve to do. They should be in. But unfortunately, it's not my call. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got a great show for you tonight. Tonight... We are going to interview. I'm going to interview, I should say, uh, a man who has been a part of this uh, fabric of American soccer in the broadcasting department for a very long time. Of course, locally, he is the analyst for Real Salt Lake. But every once in a while, he'll be joining ESPN or Fox Sports as an analyst for MLS games, Concacaf Champions League, and everywhere else. I'm very excited to have him on once again. Uh, a friend of the show, at the same time, in my opinion, one of the best analysts of the game in this country. The one and only Brian Dunseth joins me tonight. Dunny, welcome, and I hope you're doing well and I hope your family is staying safe through this coronavirus pandemic. How are you, sir? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Remind me where that Venmo account is. i got to send you some money for that intro. I appreciate it, my man. 
It's not a problem at all, and I'll wait for the check. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, I mean, we all know you as an analyst, obviously, but you played in MLS. I mean, you were a part yeah. of Major League Soccer, you know, for a good long time, uh, originally, you know, drafted by the New England Revolution. What was that like for you, a kid growing up in California? Uh, you attended uh, Cal State University in Fullerton. What was it like for you to go from uh, the sunny weather of uh, of uh, California, and then you have to go all the way to the cold in the northeast of the the Boston New England area? <laughs> yeah, it was a culture shock for sure. Here I was with uh, this little kid from Southern California who was used to sunshine and, and grass fields all the time, to walk into back in 1997 uh, a Boston culture that was. You know, people were wearing uh, flannel T-shirts and or flannel pullovers and uh, were chewing on their hats, and it was just the weirdest thing ever. I went to uh, went to go get an ice cream, like, the first night I was in Boston, and the guy's like, brother, you want any jimmies? And I was like, uh, can I just get some rainbow sprinkles on that? And he's like, yeah, brother, jimmies, sprinkles, same thing. And I was just like, oh, okay, cool. I'm in a completely different culture. So, yeah, it was fun. It was coming off of um, the Under-20 World Cup. Uh, Sunil Gulati had walked into Chula Vista, California, the Olympic Training Center, and said, uh, I'm starting this program called Project 40. Carlos Parra mm-hmm. was the first one. He went to New York, New Jersey Metro Stars. I was the second one. Somehow Thomas Rongen uh, was convinced that I was the right guy. And I spent the next four years of my life up in New England. Uh, had not, you know, things on the field weren't the best, but had an absolute blast with teammates like Joe Max Moore and, and Mike Burns and Alexi Lawless and and Johnny Harks was up there, Giovanni Savarese, Eduardo Hurtado, Wolby Harris. Uh, you know, it was, just, it was a fun time to grow up uh, in a time where coming out of college or, mm-hmm. or leaving college early, there was actually an opportunity to go straight to the pros and playing professional soccer in a somewhat stable environment in the United States. What was that like for you to play with a World Cup veteran like uh, Alexei Lalas? I mean, obviously the hmm. World Cup came in 1994. Uh, you were probably, you know, just like every other young soccer player, whether it be AYSO, high school, college. Uh, what was that like for you to be, you know, with a World Cup veteran from that 1994 year? I got to tell you, it was wild. Um, he was actually my roommate. He and Mike Burns on a couple different occasions, and when I got there in 97, everything was kind of heating up with the qualifiers for the World Cup for France. Um, and I remember, you know, going into the airport with Alexi, and it was just like, you know, goatee and hair pulled back and a hat on and glasses because everyone recognized Big Red. Uh, and then to be his roommate and just be this surreal moments where I'm, you know, I'm laying in my bed, he's laying in his bed, he's just strumming his guitar. And next thing I know, like a, an Adidas World Cup commercial comes on the TV. And I just kind of like giggle and make fun of him. Or, you know, he's got a sunglass commercial or it was a Powerade commercial or, you know, it was all these different commercials because he was one of the iconic faces of uh, coming out of 94 World Cup and going over to Italy and scoring goals uh, against Inter Milan and AC Milan and, you know, back leading the charge in the United States. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was surreal. It was a really cool moment and a guy that always kind of looked after me and treated me like I was his little brother. So, yeah, I've, I've always had a soft spot in my in my in my heart for for Lexi. You kind of bounced around after your time with the Revolution. You know, had one year mm-hmm. at the time with the Miami Fusion, and then two years in uh, two to two years in Columbus. You played in Dallas uh, for half that year as well. Um, you know, 
what was that like to go from cold to hot, back to cold, <laughs> kind of back to hot? I don't know if there's a dry heat in Texas, but, uh, you know, you bounced around all over the place. And then, of course, Salt Lake in uh, 2006, and then the Galaxy, excuse me, 2005, and the Galaxy uh, in 2006. And then, of course, you had that little stint in Sweden. Uh, if yeah. I can mispronounce the club's name, was it Bowden's BK, I believe? Yep. Or? Yep. Yep. You got it right. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, my career, I, I have a lot of pride in my career because while I was never one of those guys that could, like, get in with, like, a Bob Bradley or a Ziggy Schmidt or, or a Bruce Arena and kind of have that longevity, um, you know, my my career was, you know, a bunch of different coaches in New England and didn't ever really get along with Fernando Clavijo as a head coach down to Miami. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's it's Ray Hudson um, and and after six months of being on arguably the best team in the history of major league soccer, we get contracted. And so I go, I'm, I'm thrown into another, um, basically like another draft an expansion type of draft where I end up in Columbus. And I loved Columbus and I got traded on trade deadline because Jeff Cunningham popped his hamstring and the team was already signing a defender. And because Jeff and I made the same amount of money, I got traded. <laughs> so I just bought a house like five months earlier um, so that's why I was down in Dallas. And that was the time in Dallas where they were not in the Cotton Bowl anymore. They were actually in – it was called Dragon High – it was Dragon Stadium, and it was yes. one of the local high schools because yes. they were just announcing what is their now permanent soccer home, um, and they were just breaking ground. So that was a weird time. And then I get down there, and, and Mike Jeffries was the, G, was the head coach. He gets fired, the GM, and he quits. And next thing you know, mm-hmm. I'm, in a, I'm, in a contract, I'm in a contract expansion year. Um, and so my contract doesn't get up, get picked up and they won't trade me to Ziggy in LA, uh, cause they wanted a first round draft pick. So that's why I went to Sweden and I was going to stay in Sweden. And then I got a call from uh, John Ellinger, who was the Olympic team assistant coach. And in 2000, we had gone to the bronze medal match and John had always said, if I get a coach, if I get a coaching job, would you come? So I ended up coming to Salt Lake. My grandparents were convert Mormon and had a, I thought a really fun year playing alongside one of the most iconic central defenders or maybe the best ever and Eddie Pope at the U S men's national team. Um, and then at the end of the season, I get the, the, the kiss of we're trading you for two players. And so I got traded down to Chivas USA and then traded to LA in that same off season. Um, and Doug Hamilton dies on the flight back. Steve Sampson melts down and my back was broken and I ended up just calling it a day. So yeah, wild ride. I kind of always looked at it as like a train. Like I was on a, I was a train and people were getting on and off and I just I kind of loved the, the lifestyle, the culture and kind of the personal relationships that I created over those years of being fortunate enough to get paid to, uh, to play soccer. No, nah, I mean, who wouldn't want to have a life like that? Obviously, you know, you go all around the country, you get young jets, you go to these, uh, hmm, at hmm. the time, uh, uh, you know, NFL stadiums, Columbus Crew Stadium is the first real soccer-specific stadium built uh, in the league. And then, of course, you have, uh, you know, later on, you know, everyone's leaving NFL stadiums, college football stadiums, the Rose Bowl, no more, Giants Stadium, no more. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, you got Red Bull Arena, there's Home Depot Center slash uh, StubHub Center slash whatever center that place is going to be called, um, you know, uh, Toyota Park, Toyota Stadium, you know, now you have Bank of California Stadium in downtown L.A., which looks like a real jewel. It looks awesome. Uh, you know, seeing 
playing and you know seeing you know the the um the progression of the sport here you know i mean we all know players will get bigger faster stronger each and every year but to see the progression of stadiums being built did you feel that okay now we've made it now we're really getting in there we are now going to be a power um in the world because now we have proper stadiums for the sport and we don't have to worry about you know, oh my God, are we going to play in this game? Are we going to get a full house? I mean, we everything mm. is now coming to fruition. Yeah, I would say that a lot of people don't understand the amount of infrastructure that's been built over the years. And as you're saying that, I'm just thinking about kind of all the experiences that I've had in these like big old cavernous iconic stadiums that, you know, I can remember going to a, a Kansas City Wizard stadium at Arrowhead and, you know, playing and it was literally like, you felt like 20 people were inside the stadium. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was one of the most, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it. Fun experiences because it was like the wild, wild west for so long. Um, but at the same time, we were so proud of it. We were, and I know it sounds crazy. And, and I know there's so many pretentious, like soccer, you know, world soccer fans out there that kind of poo poo major league soccer. But the one thing, that I think when you go back to 1996 and you think about now where we're at in 2020, and like you said, all of, all of these stadiums, the academies, the USL sides, the NWSL sides, attached um, training facilities, the stadiums that are soccer specific, it took a lot of work and it's, it was a lot of money and it was a lot of hopeful investment in the beginning to try to make soccer more of a staple than what it was, the ups and downs and so many different variations of leagues that, started and stopped over the years because forever, you know, US, in the United States, soccer was really known for New York Cosmos and Pele. And outside of that, it was like, well, okay, there's a bunch of leagues and how, how long is this paycheck? How long do I have to get this paycheck to the bank to make sure it didn't bounce? So, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of the time. It was, it was incredible to think about how far we've come. And, and I think, you know, not, none of us are naive enough to not recognize that after 25 years, there's still a lot of work to do. And I, and I think all of these, all these owners, current owners, former owners, you know, future owners recognize the difficulties that still lie ahead. Um, because ultimately there's, there's one thing in my eyes that we always just have to recognize that MLS will never be able to compete in. And that is competing on Tuesday and Wednesday nights, competing in champions league. If you harbor any ambition uh, in the future or currently to play in champions league, well, MLS isn't going to be the league for you. But if you think that playing for Boca Juniors or River Plate is a great opportunity, then you're going to go to Argentina and you're going to play in Copa Libertadores. If you're in Liga Mekis right now and, and you're looking up north and you're saying, man, you know, I like that life security. I like that off-the-field anonymity. Um, I, I'd like to check out what MLS is about. It's, I think it's a burgeoning league. I think it's a, it's a strong league. It's much stronger than people give it credit for. But ultimately – uh, like we were talking about Champions League, the the other charge, I think, for MLS, and they've got to get past, I think we all have to kind of get past this egotistically, we got to figure out how to pass the eyeball test each and every time that whistle blows. Because ultimately, if you have an exciting brand of soccer or football or whatever you call it, I think that's when you're going to kind of garner the attention of, of just sport, sporting fans in general. When did you start becoming a broad uh, a broadcast analyst obviously you know when did this whole thing start like you said 
you broke your back in 2006. You call it a career. Obviously, you know, you, I, you know, I would assume you wished you could have done more, but yeah. who came up to you and said, so you want a second career in soccer? Do you want to <laughs> analyze games? You want to do this? You want to do that? I mean, who did you talk to about this? Did you go to, uh, you know, like a trade school or did you go back to college to learn to become an analyst? Uh, how did this happen? Yeah, you fake it till you make it. I didn't, I, I didn't even, I, I got three semesters in at Cal State Fullerton. I never even claimed a major. That's, I think that's what I'm most proud of at this point, that I'm still alive. And I never even had to claim a major and I stayed eligible for college soccer for, for two years or a year and a half. Um, yeah, so the story goes, so I was friends. I became friends with Alan Hopkins, with Max Bredos, with, uh, with Christian, um, out at all the guys at Fox Miles. Sports, Fox Sports World. Fox Sports World at right. the time. Christian Miles. And, yep. Uh, yep. Yeah, Christian Miles. And the three of us went to lunch one time, and I was playing for the Galaxy. And they're like, dude, you should really think about becoming a broadcaster when you're done. Like, you're super comfortable on camera. And I was like, it, it never even dawned on me. Because at that time, there weren't, like, really any ex-players that were jumping into the broadcast world. So um, I got released. Uh, my Alexi was the general manager, <laughs> funny enough, because he came in to help out uh, after leaving New York. And uh, said, hey, uh, I'm going to probably fire Steve Sampson in a couple weeks. Stick around. I was like, no, I'm good. And my wife's dad was dying at the time. And I had a couple offers to play. And I just decided that uh, I wanted to give her quality, you know, time, what was left with her dad. And so I just called it a day. And so I was back home. And you know Trey Fitzgerald. You know, Trey Fitzgerald, one of the iconic kind of uh, team PR guys in the league who at the time he, he was in New York originally and then was in Salt Lake. I was like, well, you know what? I got to get over this. You know, I know I'm never going to be able to cash another paycheck playing soccer. You know, egotistically, it's going to suck. Um, so I just need to face it. And, you know, everybody goes kind of through their bouts of depression when they're no longer a professional athlete. It's one of the secrets that no one really wants to talk about because, you know, players don't feel like they have a leg to stand on because, hey, shut up, you made it. Um, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to try to hit this head on. And there was an RSL game at the stadium at Rice-Eccles, and I, I drove up there. And as I was driving up there, I was listening to this pregame radio show with Spencer Checkett and Trey. And they were, like, you know, trying to get everybody ready for uh, the, the game that night. And as I'm driving in the car and I'm listening with my wife, I'm like, no, but see, they're missing this matchup. And they're not talking about this matchup. And this right midfielder against this left back. And you know, this attacking midfielder against this defensive midfielder. And so I got to the stadium and I was like, after the game, I, I saw Trey and I was just you know, busting his chops. And I was like, Hey man, let me know if you want someone who knows what they're talking about. Like I'll come jump on. And like, but you gotta, it sounds like such a easy move, but it, it's really like our relationship, Trey and I just busting chops. And so we end up, uh, he's like, well, I can't pay you. And I was like, that's cool. I just want to get involved. And so for the rest of that season from May to the end of the year, I was doing pregame, postgame, Real Salt Lake radio for the local uh, sports channel. Um, and I loved every second of it. I loved being able to analyze. Um, and I'll tell you a really quick one. Steve Sampson, we were playing Real Salt Lake when we were at the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Steve Sampson goes, Mr. Dunseth, can you please prepare the team for Real Salt Lake in his best kind of Star Trek voice? And uh, I was like, yeah, of course. And so I went up and I was like, 
strength, you know, here's his dominant foot, here's his weaker foot, here's what he wants to do, here's his first touch, here's his passing lanes, this is what he's always constantly looking for. On set pieces, this is what they'll do playing short, this is what they'll go long, he'll look for this knockdown header, he'll be on the penalties. In transition, watch, they want to tuck this right back in, and then they want to get spring them the attack with this, you know, deep-lying second run. And, and Samson was like, after I was done, he's like, Mr. Dunseth, I think you're better at this than we are. And he was just being a pompous ass like he usually is. Um, so, yeah, so throughout all this, I the next season, uh, this was 2006, so 2007, I became the color analyst for radio. And then about 15 games, in, uh, maybe 10 games in the season, Robin Frazier, who was doing television, uh, decided he was going to take the assistant coaching job with Jason Christ. And so since about 10 games into the 2007 season, I've been, uh, I've been doing television uh, for Real Salt Lake, Fox, ESPN, NBC Sports. Um, yeah, and yep. just kind of faking my way through it, learning on the job. You know what they say, fake it till you make it, but you're such a professional. <laughs> you know, I figured out something important in the beginning. Um, I, I, I talk to the camera like I'm talking to my wife. And, and the analogy was always, I want to teach my wife the subtleties of the game that I'm seeing and breaking down the matchups or kind of explaining the tactics, but also doing it in a way that I'm not kind of disrespecting those that already know the game, those that have grown up with the game, those that kind of have the game entrenched in their DNA. So that, that was kind of the way that I always kind of approached being able to, uh, to kind of break a game down. I don't want to dumb it down to the point where people feel like I'm speaking down to them, but I want to be able to have that mm-hmm. opportunity to educate those that are maybe new to the game, to the subtle nuances. No, I mean, absolutely, because, you know, you want to educate people. You don't want to make them feel like, uh, that you know you're annoyed by them or anything like that, and I don't yeah. blame you at all. I mean, I think, and and obviously, you know, being here in the Northeast, I, I don't have the luxury of listening to you every time. Only when you're on na- uh, national broadcasts, obviously. But you know, whenever the ML, whenever I, I go to the league site and they have an RSL broadcast and they have you analyzing, it's like fantastic stuff that you give out to the audience. And I will say this, and yes, it is Red Bull related. This is where. Uh, the Red Bulls came to play at um, Rio Tinto, where you know Gideon Boss scored the goal. Real Salt Lake came back in the second half to make it 2-1, but there was a red card tackle, and it was a tackle that was given a red card by the referee. And you thought originally that you know it was a hard tackle by the Red Bulls back line. You know why did this happen? You know he should have held up. But then when you saw the replay, you're like, that's incorrect. That should never have been a red card. And then, of course, hmm. the red card stayed. And I'm thinking to myself, this is, why Bron- this is why Dunny is one of the best analysts out there. Because he recognizes right away there was an issue with that call. There was an issue with that red card that it should never have been given because it was a clean tackle. It, I think it was on... Oh, I forget his name. Zhao Plata, I think it was, that red card. Uh, not on Plata, but the tackler on Plata got the red card when he never got him at all because he got all ball. And you were, like, spot on on it. I mean, granted, I get Shep messing, and Shep's a nice guy and everything, and I love Shep. 
but you are, in my mind, you know, right there, you were spot on right away, and it was fantastic. No, thank you. I appreciate that. It's it's one of the things where, obviously, when you're when you're a part of a club, automatically you're a homer, right? Everybody's like, ah, he's just mm-hmm. a homer. Um, and one of the things that I pride myself on is trying to call the game as down the middle as possible, um, much to the ire of my own home fans here in Salt Lake. They'll be like, what is done says he real Salt Lake? But I'll be like, no, that's not a red. Or, like, I'll say, uh, oh, he deserves that yellow. And it'll be like an RSL fan. Like, well, dude, you're supposed to, like, have the backing of the RSL team. And my whole thing is, like, we, ha- we have to educate. It is, a, it is a teaching moment. And my problem with the Homer broadcast, and there's a, there's a couple out there, um, and I don't even have to name the names because everybody already knows. The problem is that if you, if you set the standard of being a Homer broadcast, then you're creating these false realities for fans and fans that are kind of just getting into the game. And the, and the, the rule, the laws of the game are so difficult to comprehend because they're always ever changing that, you know, if if you don't, if you don't set the right standard, in my opinion, with the fan base, then inevitably you're, you're creating all these false pretenses where you're, you're sending so, so much misinformation out that all of a sudden, like, the fans don't know what to even look for. They don't know what's real or what's fiction. So mm-hmm. I, I just think calling, calling games down the middle, it's afforded me so many different opportunities on national broadcast, international broadcast. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely kind of a source of pride for me. No, absolutely. And, you know, you've been doing a great job ever since. You know, I have to ask you, uh, locally, Real Salt Lake-wise, what was it like, you know, to go through the Jason Christ era I mean, you know, we all know he was a great striker, over 100 goals, playing for most of his career with the Dallas Burn slash FC Dallas. He finishes up his career. And then all of a sudden, Dave Chekets just comes out of nowhere and says to him, um, you want to quit and retire and be our head coach? And then he pulls this off. I, I mean, what was that like for you to analyze the Jason Christ coaching era at, at Real Salt Lake? I um, it was a wild time because so I played with Jason in Dallas uh, for the burn at the aforementioned Dragon Stadium, and he had torn his knee. So he was basically out. He was there every day, but he was just out. He couldn't play. And then playing with him in Salt Lake and watching him break the the hundredth, uh, be the first player to score 100 goals in Major League Soccer, and then to uh, tear his ACL there uh, was devastating. And and to be on a team that just continued to kind of struggle. Um, to the point where all of a sudden, yeah, they said, uh, hold on, John Ellinger, you're, you're going to become the GM. We're going to move you upstairs, and Jason's going to be the head coach. You know, for Jason, the first six months, he was just completely underwater, trying to figure out the rules and the regulations. And then, thankfully, Chekets hired, uh, um, hired Garth Lagerway. And Garth and Jason were close to begin with, and then working with each other, the amount of success that they had. And then you had a Bill Manning, who's now in Toronto, that, that trifecta was really, really, uh, really successful from Open Cup Finals to CONCACAF Champions League Finals to uh, MLS Cup Trophies. Um, so they kind of had lightning in a bottle. But I think each of them were important, but collectively they were fantastic together. So, yeah, fun, fun to watch Jason uh, do so well to the point where, you know, Man City takes notice and he's the first coach in the history of NYCFC. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, obviously, it's been a struggle for him, you know, since leaving Salt Lake. Obviously, I mean, hmm. I, I mean, I, I think, I think that's one of those brains 
that, uh, you know, you want to see, uh, you know, get back into the swing of things. I know he's going to run the Olympic team, and uh, hopefully we will get qualifying underway for the Olympics. It's been such a long time since our, our national team in the men's section, in the under-23s, has qualified for an Olympics. Um, yeah. And apparently now we just found out, uh, which I didn't know it was up already, uh, uh, Los Angeles is granted again the next summer games after uh, Japan. Now we're going to have it back oh, wow. in L.A., which means if if we don't qualify. I know this was a shock to me, too. I wasn't even aware until like it popped up on Twitter. I'm like, oh, I didn't know. Uh, you know, the voting was on for uh, the next summer games after Japan. Um, you know, I it's going back to yeah. Los Angeles. And if we're not going to qualify for Tokyo, uh, then then for goodness sakes, we'll be automatically qualified for uh, Los Angeles <laughs> in the next four years. Yeah, it's going to be a good group, too. Uh, after watching Cole Bassett score against Real Salt Lake the other night, uh, I think you got a really strong group. And um, you know, it's going to be interesting. You, you, you've got the Tab Ramos years where he produced a lot of really, really good players. So now Anthony Hudson somehow kind of backs his way into an under-20 national team after failing in spectacular fashion Colorado. So, yeah, I, I think for as much as people talk trash about the U.S. men's national team, and listen, rightly so, after missing out on qualification down in Trinidad and Tobago, um, this next generation, this next generation, of player is much stronger than people realize. And I, I think you only have to look at the amount of minutes being logged, the amount of games being played right now for players that are teenagers up until uh, the under 23 crop right now to be really impressed with what's happening. I want to ask your opinion about um, that big run that Real Salt Lake had in the CONCACAF Champions League. Now, of course, this is when we still had group stage games and then we moved on to the knockout stage the following year. Um, yeah. You know, to see what they did with the group that they had. I mean, you know, Real Salt Lake and the Jason Price era. I mean, to me, that's like, you know, okay, you had Bruce Arena at the start with DC United, but then again, it's like, here's Jason having this team and they're going through a renaissance and they're just mowing down everybody. You know, granted, they only made it to one MLS Cup final and won it, but still, though, you've always felt that this is a team that can go out there and come out of nowhere to bring home either a domestic title, uh, uh, you know, a national title with the Open Cup, even a possibility of taking over uh, the Confederation with the Champions League and finally we're going to be a Mexican team and they were just one goal shy of taking out Monterey on aggregate to win that title. And they had to face a Victor Vucetic side that really yeah. was a very strong side. I mean, you got a great draw down there in the first leg final in Mexico. But that second leg in first half stoppage time, that really knocked the, the wind right out of everybody at Rio Tinto Stadium. Yeah, yeah it was actually uh, Hamasen Olave, of all the people, to make a mistake. Uh, he kind of, just for a second, lost Chupete. And Chupete and, and Aldo De Nigres up top were just fantastic at that time for Monterrey. And that's when they were kind of in their heyday. Uh, of, of winning trophies, and that was 2010-ish, right on the backside of the 09 MLS Cup run. Um, they they lost on penalties in Kansas City, 
in the final a few years later. They lost to uh, Ben Olsen, uh, I think, one shot in the entire match in the Open Cup. And so they, they, they yep. made these runs, and they were so close on so many different occasions. But, you know, I don't know. It, when I look back, it was a special time because you had all of these Americans with a chip on their shoulder, with a little bit of European experience kind of sprinkled with all of these lesser-known Argentine or Costa Rican uh, or Jamaican players that still had a point to prove. And it was just a fun group of players. And I think now, you know, the the struggle for everybody, you know, Garth, Garth's doing it on a consistent basis up in Seattle. Bill Manning's been pretty consistent up in uh, up in Toronto, even though he's had a lot of help with Tim Bezbachenko and now Ollie mm-hmm. Curtis. Um, you know, for Jason, it's been frustrating because, what happened in New York? Probably had the the rug pulled out of him a little too quickly. Thank you, David Villa. Uh, and then in Orlando, gets caught in kind of a weird transition of ownership, uh, and yeah. probably and I and I think nowhere near got the time he deserved. And we've seen up until Oscar Breja's hiring, just a disaster of uh, you know a carousel of players and coaches. I also think now yeah. it's just a different league. You know, it's just a completely different league. And now, with tar- you know, it's not just the players, it's the target allocation money uh, development. All these things matter. So the depth of the roster, the competitiveness of the roster is so much more significant than it once was, even though you still had some things back in the day in MLS. No, absolutely. Um and just to see how some of these teams are now going with, uh, and of course, you know, with Real Salt Lake is their Real Monarchs club in USL Championship League, and you are the second, uh, the third MLS-owned USL club, second to win it in the final of USL Championship because obviously the Galaxy lost to uh, Rochester Rhinos. Uh, and then the following year, the New York Red Bulls, too, they uh, defeated, um, I think it was the Sporting Kansas City side at the time, which was uh, Swole Park Rangers in the final. Yeah, and I Dangerous. think one of the things that... And a very good Louisville City side. Yeah, it, yeah, was, it was, you know, one, one of the things that I think that... that as an organization that really benefited Havasin Alave and Real Monarchs was this this relationship of sending players down and being able to send an Eric Holt or a Tate Schmidt, um, sending down a, a Luke Mulholland or a David Ochoa. RSL rostered players that were on that run of like 12 games with Havasin Alave and Real Monarchs. And this year it's been a struggle because that was the same plan. You know, he, I think every week, Thomason was going to be looking at six new players or six different players that were going to come down because they needed playing time because they would train with the first team and then get their, their minutes with the Monarchs. And because of COVID, you can send players down, but it's going to be a 10-day quarantine for them to come back. And right now... David Ochoa just returned from uh, a thumb injury that kept him out of the Orlando tournament and played back-to-back games, and they got to figure out, is he going to be quarantined or is he going to stay and play? 
the through the end of the USL season, because obviously goalkeeper has been a talking point between McMath and Platina on the backside of uh, Ramondo's retirement. So, um, and, and then you get into the green card effects where all of these teams were planning on having two to three players get their green cards, which opens up a bunch of international slots. So, yeah, there's been difficulty all around, but RSL and the Monarchs had a really good relationship and kind of philosophy of utilizing some of the younger homegrown players to get the maximum amount of minutes with Real Monarchs and then develop and to be like a Justin Portillo, a Douglas Martinez, or a Michael Chang who are having kind of significant strides with the first team at Real Salt Lake. And that's been a great partnership. And, you know, I always feel good to see uh, these players uh, that are being developed by these MLS clubs and their academies getting that opportunity in USL Championship League and then, of course, USL League One, and, and then you get an opportunity to be on the MLS roster. Do you feel that while we all know what Inter Miami's doing, they brought over Gonzalo Higuain, they brought over Pizarro from Liga MX, uh, Alan Pulido is with Sporting Kansas City, and of course Chicharito is now with the Galaxy, even though it looks like it hasn't been a very good start with him there. Are you seeing that the MLS clubs moving away from high-priced foreign players, whether they're on the verge of like you know ending their career or they just want a, a move to a different lifestyle? Do you feel these MLS academies slash MLS-owned USL teams is now the newest way to go to build the roster? I think the league is pivoting on such an annual basis. Um, the conversations I've had, and I've had a lot of conversations with chief business officers, team presidents, uh, sporting directors, general managers, you have it. I mean, it was you know, hey, let's get a USL side. Oh, hey, let's get a training facility. Hey, let's hmm. let's bring an academy in-house. Like, oh, by the way, here's target allocation money, even though you've signed three designated players and you can't utilize any of that. Um, I, I just don't think one size fits all, and I think that's kind of the beauty of what we're seeing with Major League Soccer is, you know, you could do what FC Dallas and Real Salt Lake and the New York Red Bulls have done, and that's, you know, try to build from the ground up which is important, but I only think that's a certain part of the talking. I think that's a, a certain talking point of ultimate success. Um, I think you can have a style and an identity like Bob Bradley at LAFC and have an academy system that's starting at 12 years old, which means you're going about coaching other players from the academy, from respective teams. I think there is a way to go out and get a Zlatan Ibrahimovic and be successful or a Didier Drogba and be successful or a Terry Henry and be successful, or a Wayne Rooney and be successful, and a Pepita Higuain and be successful. I think especially now with COVID, you have so many clubs that are dumping players to see Miami go get Higuain and get Blaise Matuidi and different ways than financially that they're going about it. And utilizing it, not just talking about salary, because there's no such thing as a salary cap. It's really a salary budget. And there's so many different silos in that salary budget. So, yeah, I don't think there's one size fits all. Um, but I would say that the chances for mm-hmm. making mistakes are that much more expensive now that you're going out and spending money. 
Because let's use Atlanta United as a perfect example. Atlanta United, we were using Atlanta United as the, 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 the barometer for what success looked like for LAFC, both on and off the field. And now, just a few years later, Tata Martino's gone. Miggy Almiron's gone. P.T. Martinez is sold. Joseph Martinez is injured. And my word, Atlanta looks like an expansion team. They, they don't look like the, the, you know, the, the bell of the ball like they were with Major League Soccer just a few years ago. So, yeah, one size fits all. I think it's important to have a blend. And if you have a blend and an identity on the field, I think that's where you're going to find a lot of success. And, uh, and when you're trying to capture the most important part of the fans, and that would be uh, their credit cards and their wallets. No, I agree with you there. Um, just to go back to the Utah scene, how happy are you, impressed, or you know, pleasantly surprised to see uh, the Salt Lake region or the entire state of Utah going soccer crazy? Obviously, the Jazz will always be there in Utah. You know, they're the big NBA team over there. They have their uh, minor league hockey team. They got their minor league baseball team in the Pacific Coast League. But you know the way that they've embraced Salt Lake, Real Salt Lake, you know, how happy and impressed or pleasantly surprised you are that the the continuing growth of this club, as well as the people who live in that city and the state are drawn for Saturday nights. It's been impressive. And you have kind of the religion component with Mormonism. So you have a, kind of a, a big chunk of, of fans here in Utah that don't really want to be a part of games on Sunday, uh, that can't be a part of games on Sunday. Um, you know, the breakdown is, yeah, Utah Jazz is, is number one in the market because it's an NBA team, rightly so. You also have the University of Utah and BYU. So football, college football kind of reigns supreme. Um, but I'll give you a, a pretty interesting stat. When Real Salt Lake had um, its, its playoff matches, and they went head-to-head on a, a Saturday night with University of Utah football, BYU football, and a Utah Jazz playoff game, RSL sold out their stadium. So it's got its own niche, and, what's, what's even, and it's about 18,000 standing room. What's also impressive is that uh, I think Deloitte Hansen, you know, and obviously with what's happened in, in, in the past two weeks, has been really horrifying in a lot of ways. Um, but what Deloitte Hansen built in terms of infrastructure and bringing the NWSL here and providing uh, high-level, exquisite, world-class women's soccer to this valley and to this state, uh, a lot of fans showed up and embraced Kristen Press and uh, embraced you know, Amy Rodriguez and you know all of these world-class type of players here in Utah. Um, so they've, they, you know, soccer. When you think about the dynamic here in Utah, and especially with Mormonism, you know, all of these, all of these teenagers, uh, 18, 19, 20, that go on their mission to a foreign country for two years and end up coming back, and they've been exposed to kind of this soccer-mad environment, um, but, you know, you're walking right into an RSL uh, stadium to get your soccer fix. And so it's, it's been fun to see it grow, um, and there's a lot of – there's a lot of loyalty, a lot of loyalty. And, and now, as we're seeing these last two weeks with all the havoc out here in Salt Lake, uh, a lot of account- accountability, and rightly so. 
I mean, that was a strange moment. What, what, when you heard about the situation with uh, with Mr. Hansen, I mean, hmm. how did you feel? I mean, you know, what, what were your your emotions, your feelings when you heard this news? And I believe it was former Salt Lake player Andy Williams that stepped up. Was that true? Yeah, it was. Um, so, kind of, I'll give you a timeline of how this all kind of played out. There was, you know, there 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 was there was experiences. Let's put it that way. That had kind of transpired over the years, and uh, at some point, uh, you know, we all kind of were just waiting to see how this would all play out. Um, and there were a couple moments in time where, you know, people tried to go public with their stories. And for one reason or another, it just kind of didn't make any waves. Um, the butterfly effect of everything that happened in Wisconsin a couple of weeks ago that then resonated into the Milwaukee Bucks not participating in the playoffs down in Orlando, mm-hmm. which then became Major League Soccer on that Wednesday night about two and a half weeks ago. Um, when that happened, that following morning, Deloy Hansen as the owner got on one of his local radio stations. And Deloy's a billionaire, right? A, a, like five times over. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the joke was uh, Utah owns the mountains, Deloy owns everything in between. And was a, kind of a self made billionaire from North Logan, Cache Valley, Utah, uh, apartment complexes, commercial real estate. He's a builder. That's how he made his money. And so the infrastructure from buying the stadium from Checkets and the team and bringing the women's game and Monarchs having a facility down in Harriman, which essentially cost about $100 million, the infrastructure is turnkey here, absolutely turnkey. So whoever comes in is going to walk into one of the best possible structures that you can have in Major League Soccer, top to bottom, from 12 years old all the way to the first team. Um, but that next morning, he got on the radio, uh, and he kept using this, this terminology of, I feel profoundly disrespected, um, and then kind of led into this, this side angle of what was happening nationally. He wished the players would kind of, um, and I'm, I'm trying to go back in my mind and verbalize this the correct way, but basically that the players were more worried about what was happening nationally as opposed to locally, and then kind of continued on in saying that, because the players refused to play that he was going to have to um, basically fire or lay off another round of people after he'd already furloughed a bunch of people. Um, and Nate Aloha, oh, the central defender had personally kind of financed and backed uh, some of these furloughed, furloughed employees during this pandemic while the owner was mm-hmm. you know, billionaire five times over. So that, you know, that, that as soon as he was done with that interview, I started getting phone calls from New York. Um, later in the afternoon, I found out he was going on the second radio show of the day. This time, instead of being on an FM, he was on the AM. Uh, and kind of weird poetic justice, he was with Spencer Checkett, which is Dave Checkett's son, um, who he mm-hmm. had kind of wrestled the, the club away from. What's up, buddy? Nice. Go get it. Sorry, my, my two-year-old's talking to me. Um, That's all right. So after after kind of the second time trying to – either walk back or justify what he was saying um, or why he said what he said, that turned into Andy Williams' kind of cerebral, well, screw it, I'm going to tell my story, since he's out there telling his story. And the moment that Andy, and, and I knew, I've spoken to plenty of reporters who wanted to write the story but just couldn't get enough people to go on, um, go on record that it was coming. The, the moment that Andy went on record 
with his two experiences, and there there were many others, but those two uh, having to do with with had racial, very racial, uh, not even undertones, just flat yeah. out. You know, there's N word dropped, and there was a uh, Kellen Acosta yeah. moment um, where it's all in the athletic article where basically said, or, or is this the kid we got a lynch? Which is just a horrific moment. Um, that's when it all started. And once that momentum started picking up, um, then it kind of turned towards his chief business officer, Andy Carroll. Uh, and there was accusations laid at his feet within, I would say about 10 hours, uh, he was put on leave. So following morning, that Sunday morning, uh, after the team drew four, four in Portland, the official statement came out that Deloitte was going to sell the team as quickly as possible. Um, and those wheels have been in motion ever since. And I give the players and I give the coaching staff a lot of credit because they dealt with it with a Mike Pecky situation, with the Craig Weibel situation. And now they, uh, they dealt with, or they're dealing with it with, uh, with Deloitte Hansen and Andy Carroll. And, uh, I guess I'll end it with saying, you know, like, I think Deloitte thought that he was going to go out and get his pound of flesh, um, in that, that morning interview. And I don't think he ever realized that pound of flesh was going to be his own by the end of the night. Yeah, and that's a shame. Um, what he did uh, for this club and for the community and for the league has been fin- fantastic. But sadly, there's always going to be a, uh, a dark side to some uh, to some yeah. people when you're, I you know when you're in that that level of power. But um, you know, I, I want to ask you, um, you know, whether it be a local match, whether it be an, uh, a national broadcast. In your mind, uh, you know, what was the, the – what which which play-by-play guy did you enjoy on a national broadcast? I mean, I know you came hmm. one time with J.P. Della Camera, who's always been hmm. one of the best in the business. Um, yeah. I know that you are joined uh, once in a while. It's, it's, if it's not David James, it's Greg uh, Rubel uh, as your uh, play-by-play guy. I know David probably also does um, – uh, or if it's the other guy, I forget that does uh, the uh, University of uh, Utah. I think it is. Does the Utes yeah, Bill college Riley. football yeah, team? Bill Riley. Yep. Yep. Bill yep. Riley. So I mean, yep. So you know, um, Bill Riley. Thank you very much. Um, you know what? Who has been you know a pleasure to work with, whether it be Billy or whether it be an, uh, an a national broadcast level. So I got, I got a couple of them and it's hard for me to choose one because they're so different. They all have kind of their unique styles and that's what makes them so good. Uh, Kanji man up in New York. I, I love what I love working with Kanji man. Um, I've worked a, a bunch of broadcasts with Steve Cangelosi. Um, JP is a legend. I've learned so much and there's not a nicer guy in the game that is willing to take time and to help you. And the moment that I started working with JP at Fox and doing, I've probably done, I don't know, a couple hundred games with JP. Um, I realized very quickly that I needed to take 45 minutes to two hour walks with him every day because that just, that, that amount of information and knowledge that was there. If I, if I, if I put my time in, he was just going to give me everything. And I had, I've, I have an unbelievable friendship with JP because of those walks. Um, John Strong, I did his very first national broadcast with NBC Sports with John Strong when he was uh, just starting out in Portland. 
Um, so he's a, he's a real fun one. And then I'll give you one that's probably uh, in back in the day was really, 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 um, I, I guess, kind of a national presence. It was Max Bredos. Bredos died. I, he, he, I did my very first box game with Bredos, and it was like 4 a.m. We were doing L.A. Galaxy at Hong Kong mm-hmm. 11 because it was one of those David Beckham, Herb Life promotion, promotional trips. Um, and Maxi, that was right. my very first Fox broadcast. So, yeah, those, those are the guys that – and I'm probably forgetting a bunch of other ones. Um, but, yeah, those are the ones that I got special special place in my heart for. How's it been uh, being on SiriusXM's FC channel? I know you've been on Counterattack a lot. You're one of the co-hosts of that show, whether it be uh, with Tony Miola, who's now doing Chicago Fire, analyzing uh, those games on WGN Sports. Uh, obviously, you probably had different co-hosts. But you've been the, you know, the steady guy to be on Counterattack on SiriusXM FC. How's that been for you? It's been a blast. Uh, it's been it's been really fun, man. I love it. It's it's part of my team. Um, five days a week, uh, four to seven East Coast on You know, from working with Tony uh, to working with Yanis Mahalik to Charlie Davies, it's just been it's just a blast. I mean, every day just talking about soccer. And um, you know, at first I kind of always understood the difficulties of being a young American or a younger American, even though I'm old, um, to talk about European football and this idea of, you know, hey, you know, you didn't play over there. And the test of every day, having to prove my knowledge while having fun and, you know, having some banter involved in it. Um, I love it. It's It's been a blast. And being able to work with, you know, one of the most iconic guys in the sport and tough old meat hands, um, I just have a blast. It's, it's, it's so much fun. It's just a lot of jokes, a lot of busting chops. Um, a ton of interaction with the callers and the listeners, whether it be on social media or uh, on the phone lines. So, yeah, man, it, it's 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 a it's a unique show because it covers literally uh, like it covers England or Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga, Serie A, Major League Soccer, Liga MX. Uh, then you get into the national games. We just came off Euros. Uh, then you got to think about all the other international games international friendlies, uh, regional qualifiers. We do uh, NWSL. We're just kind of all over the place. So basically every segment is uh, is a different genre or a different realm or a different league within the sport of soccer. So let me ask you this, and uh, I guess this will be my last question uh, for the night. Um, have you ever thought about coaching? Did you ever want to coach? I mean, I know you do a great job. No, but I'm being serious. I mean, look at yeah. – I mean, he had Lawless. You know, he, he was if – if, if he's not analyzing something, then he was a general manager. You got Tony yeah. who has coached and analyzed. I mean, you got John Harks who was also uh, coaching and analy- – first he analyzed, then he coached. He's in Greenville yeah. in USL League One. I, I mean, Tab Ramos – you know, you know, he was a player, and then he becomes uh, part of, you know, coaching kids, and now he's in MLS coaching uh, with the U.S. men's national team under 20 uh, teams and what he's done. Did you ever think about one day, you know, like you said, you, you fake it till you make it. I mean, did you ever think about maybe – I wonder what it would be like to, you know, draw up tactics 
you know, have a game plan. This is how we're going to do. Because I mean, I'll be honest with you. I mean, it to me. Okay, Steve Sampson, jerk. I understand from your perspective. It's fine, <laughs> but to me, it sounded like you could have been a head coach. You 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 could have been a part of a coaching staff. You know, I, I I made myself a promise that after what happened in Major League Soccer, that I would never ever have just a single form of income. Um, and that's why I love the broadcasting side. I love the hustle. I love not having like a full time gig. I love being an independent contractor. Um, and I and I love that type of pressure. Uh, and which is funny mm-hmm. because then everyone's always like, "Well, being a coach, you know, the, what do you mean? <laughs> pressure of winning and losing." I was also able to turn that competitive side off. Mio and I just talked about this the other day, funny enough, and he still has to, like, want to win. He's got to be invested, and I, don't, I just don't have that. Um, could I have been a coach? Easily, yeah, no problem. I, I, I've, I've, had, I've had a bunch of preliminary talks about being a general manager as well. I, I think kind of building a squad is a little bit more fascinating. Uh, it gives you a little bit more of a leash anyways. Um, just look what's happening with Chris Armis and the New York Red Bulls right now. Um, I, I digress. You know, it's, I just think it's, yeah, coaching would be fun. I think I would be invested in it, but I also never liked the idea of, you know, say 30 guys that basically hold your destiny in, in the, you know, in, in their feet or in their emotions during the 90 minutes. So, yeah, I, I just decided that, you know, coaching would be, the clock starts ticking as soon as you take over. And uh, I just really enjoy living up here in Salt Lake City, and I just didn't want to leave. And that was kind of the same thing with, you know, before Craig Weibel became general manager, there was, you know, some interest there. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not, mm-hmm. not the right time. So, yeah, I've, I've blurted around with the idea of agency and representing players as well. And one of my best friends, Sean Higgins, who represents Aaron Long, um, started his company. And he's always kind of trying to get at me to come join him. Um, so yeah, I, I've, I've thought about all these things, but I gotta be honest, man. I just love what I do. I, I honestly feel, I feel like I'm better served and more confident now in my mm-hmm. role that I have versus when I was a player. And that's why I love what you do because you are one of the best analysts out there in this game. And uh, hopefully when this whole pandemic is over with, we can get back to, you know, the regular, our regularly scheduled episodes and uh, having you on a national broadcast whenever you get that opportunity. Dunny, I, I always appreciate you coming on this show. Thank you again for coming on. Talk about your career as a player and, of course, as a broadcast analyst. I love having you on. Anytime you want to come back on, you know you're always welcome to uh, get back on these airwaves. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck uh, with you and your family and your career. And please remain safe and please remain vigilant. Hopefully we'll get a cure for this thing. Yeah, I appreciate it, my man. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the next one. Awesome. Take care now. Have a good night. Okay. Brian Dunseth, broadcast analyst for Real Salt Lake, as well as national uh, broadcast analyst uh, for either ESPN or Fox Sports. Uh, this is one of those best guys, great guys I love having on the show. So um, it's it's great to have him on the show to talk about you know him. And once again, celebrating 25 years of Major League Soccer. He was a part of it. He played in it. He's a broadcast analyst of it. It's great to have a guy like Dunny on the show and uh, to talk about it. Real quick, I know, um, New York Red Bulls, Red Bulls uh, segment. 
Uh, Bradley Carnell finally gets his first win, even though it's an interim head coach. It still is. He's a head coach on an interim basis. And 2-0, great goals, great setup, great job to counter what's been going on with, of course, after the whole Chris Armas situation. Um, Clean slate, get out there, go after it. Uh, Great goals by both Aaron Long uh, from Kaku as well as Daniel Royer finally getting back on the scoreboard. Kaku sets up uh, Pendant, who crossed it over to the middle of the pitch, and there was Roy with a volley. (coughs) Pardon me. 2-0 Red Bulls. They played great. They kept on attacking. They kept on going forward, and they found a way uh, to just play so much better, so much looser, so so much uh, ground, and it was an absolute dream of a win, 2-0 New York Red Bulls at the end of that one. But other than that, um, you know, with CONCACAF now, we're going to have to uh, see what's going to happen with World Cup qualifying, more problems, more issues because of the pandemic, the coronavirus. Um, you know, there's got to be some, some form of an emergency power here because this region is still in a problem with the coronavirus, and hopefully we can get uh, this matter taken care of as fast as possible so we can get these qualifiers going. Excuse me. Sorry about that. Probably going to sneeze again. Hold on. Sorry about that, folks. But anyway, CONCACAF is having a bit of a problem. We, they may have to uh, play uh, qualifying matches in months that are not uh, in a window area. They might have to be forced to be uh, you know, plopping everything into one big uh, bubble, if it's possible. Uh, we'll see what happens. We'll have to wait and see what's going to happen. They might have to play it in December. They might, they might have to. So we'll see what happens. Um, other than that, in two weeks, CONCACAF will have their first ever draw for the group stage and for the uh, qualifiers for three spots for uh, the fourth position in each group. Of course, Qatar has been given the uh, designation as guest team to play in one of those, in one of those uh, fourth position Asian football cup winners. And... Like I said, I don't agree with it, but what are you going to do? They're going to still do it, and I believe it's going to be for this edition next next year as well as uh, the next edition, 2023, so we'll have to wait and see. Other than that, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank my guest, Brian Dunseth, the Real Salt Lake analyst, as well as national broadcast analyst for either ESPN or Fox Sports. It's been fantastic to have him on to talk about his career. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thank you very much for listening to me tonight. And as always, please enjoy your football. Next week, we will have on U.S. soccer historians to talk about the Soccer Hall of Fame nominating committees and the lack of players being nominated for the Hall. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Once again, this has been the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. Have a good night. Take care. So long. Bye-bye for now. And as always, please enjoy your football. Have a good night. Take care. Bye-bye for now.